Hello and welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. My name is Rebecca Lindenback and I am filling in for my mom, Sheila, because she is on vacation. And I'm Connor, Rebecca's husband. I am filling in for Rebecca. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. So welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. This is where we like to kind of get back to basics and talk about what is really true and what actually helps marriages through evidence-based teachings and evidence-based research and all that fun stuff. And we're really going to be hitting on that today because we're going to be reviewing some neuroscience research about this whole men are visual in a way women can never understand mentality that we have in the evangelical church. Very fun topic. Very, very fun. So pretty much, this is what this is why we are really doing this while my mom is not here, because <laughs> as we're going to talk about, it's really important to kind of know what you know. Yeah. And my mom is a very educated woman in lots of fields that are not at all neuroscience related. Yeah, there's a reason that I'm not the one writing the blog posts. Yeah, exactly. So what we wanted to do is talk through two recent meta-analyses that have come out about sex differences in the brain in the last two years. So first mm -hmm. of all, I am just going to take a minute and explain the difference between a normal study and a meta-analysis for the people who might not know because, you know, not everyone knows everything about statistics that you need to know and that's perfectly fine and understandable and yeah. to be expected. <laughs> Frankly, I'm actually, I'm sure many people are kind of jealous of people who didn't have to sit through stats class. Yeah. <laughs> so I like stats class, but anyway, that doesn't matter. So what happens in a normal normal study is say you have a school and they measure whether or not kids ate pizza for lunch and then how they did on a geometry exam. They have like about a, about 100 students were part of their study and they found that the students who ate pizza did better on the geometry exam and they published this study and said pizza helps kids with geometry, okay? And then you have school B that does the same study but they have 500 kids and they're like, well, we didn't really find that pizza did much but we did find that having lunch in the cafeteria made you more likely to do well in geometry. And then, you know, uh, this keeps on happening over and over and over again. And a bunch of people are all studying the link between geometry and pizza. And over time, you get a bunch of research that says it does help, a bunch of research that says it doesn't, a bunch of research that says it helps, but it's mediated by this. And what happens is a meta-analysis will take all of those different studies apply a lot of very intense statistical analyses to them. It'll organize them, it'll weight them differently, it'll um, have really strict inclusion and exclusion criteria. But say you had like 30 studies that totaled to have like 15,000 students, but each individual study only had a couple of hundred. That means that the meta-analysis can have the info from thousands upon thousands of people and have much stronger findings. So in mm -hmm. essence, what it does, it takes all those little studies and it puts them all together and creates a lot more powerful of a study, which means that our results are less likely to be due to chance. We're also much less likely to have said something works when it really doesn't. Yeah. It kind of weeds out a lot of stuff, and, and that's why it's important to be able to look at the meta-analyses when they're out, because often it's going to include the studies that we looked at, but it's also going to be able to compare those, combine it with others, and I know this is a really oversimplified explanation for anyone who actually does statistics and works in meta-analysis research. And for anyone who doesn't, it's probably overly complicated. Like, it's, I know, this is, this is one of the most, what you need to know is meta-analyses are genuinely, like, they're seen as the best of the best. When you go to a doctor and they're figuring out what treatment to give you, if there's a meta-analysis on it, they're going to be going for that journey. 
journal article. They're going to be yeah. looking for the meta-analyses. And because they're the strongest, they're yeah. the most reliable. One thing is particularly helpful for, which is going to be relevant with what we're talking about, is when sometimes you go to look something up and look for articles about it to figure out the nature of something. And you'll come across one article that says one thing. And then right after that, right below it, is another article that says the exact opposite thing. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to figure out, okay, well, it seems like there's a lot of contention here, but then you get a meta-analysis and you can see, well, will you look at that? There are two or three really popular studies that mm -hmm. got talked about a lot in the press that say this. Here are 25 other studies with larger sample sizes that show the opposite or show how the data was misinterpreted from these other studies. Yeah, exactly. And that's why meta-analyses are just so important because mm -hmm. they take you out of the individual. You're looking at one school and, hey, pizza seems to help these kids have great geometry tests. And you take it into a wider level. You look at like kind of all the kids who are taking geometry tests and you realize, oh, it's not actually that pizza makes kids smarter. It's that, you know, maybe it's the families who can afford to eat pizza every single day can also afford to hire a tutor, mm -hmm. right? Like there's, there's other things that the meta-analyses can kind of tease out, which we find super interesting when you're looking at it. Yeah. So let's talk meta-analyses and neuropsychology research. So before we do that, I want to explain why we're going to be looking at certain people, okay? So for years, Shanti Felton has been the person that the evangelical world goes to for neuropsych research, okay? The evangelical world has depended on her to tell them about brain differences between men and women since she wrote her first book based in this, um, mm -hmm. I think in 2004, For Women Only came out. She's been the influential one because she's quote unquote done the research. And she says this, like, I've done the research. I've researched this extensively. I've read all the studies. Like, she, she says that kind of thing. Yeah, so she, we wanted, she markets herself as a Harvard educated, educated researcher. researcher. Yeah, so we wanted to look at what doing the research actually meant. So I looked at her books through a man's eyes and I looked at the footnotes for, for women only, the updated version where she put her footnotes in with some neuroscience research because it was the the first of all the, the first edition of the book really didn't have any neuroscience research mm -hmm. even though it made a lot of neuroscience claims which is problematic and so here are a couple things that I do want to kind of bring up off the top okay Shanti Felden is not educated in neuroscience she's not uh, her degree was in something like economics or business or she was more in that world of things when she did her undergrad and her master's. She did not have a degree in psychology, in cognitive sciences, anything like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. I am also not a neuroscientist. Yeah, I'm not a neuroscientist. I also don't have a Harvard degree in economics. Yes, exactly. Like, it's it just is what it is, right? Yeah. We, however, do have degrees in psychology. We've taken neuroscience courses. Mm -hmm. um, we have had to study neuroscientific principles and applications in pretty much every single course that we've taken. We've specifically trained in psychometrics. Yep. Uh, and stats geared towards psychology specifically. Yeah, and and that we and the same kinds of things that are done in you know a lot of neuroscience research. Mm -hmm. So, but so there is that. But even us, we are not really qualified to speak on neuroscience research as a neuroscience researcher. Yeah. Because we're not we're not that. Yeah. And neuropsychology and neuroscience is so incredibly complex. It's really intense of a field, actually. And so we need to be really careful that we don't just assume that we know things that we don't. Yeah. So first of all, let's let's get that under our belt. Like, the person who is purported to be the expert in evangelicalism, 
does not have a neuroscience degree. And from what we can tell, has not taken any neuroscience courses. It's not even like, well, they took a couple courses at university. I'm not even, I, I haven't seen any proof that that's been the case. She hasn't put out her course schedule, so maybe she did. Maybe she did all her elections and electives in neuroscience. But it's not something she advertises. No, and all I'm going to say is as someone who was in neuroscience classes, I didn't really meet a lot of economics majors who were taking neuroscience as their electives. <laughs> so I'll just say that. So what research did Shanti actually do? It seems to me, from looking at her footnotes, there's only a handful of articles that she ever cites, and two of them in her book Through a Man's Eyes are from, but like, longer than 10 years ago at the point that she published that book. Yeah. Now, psychology, and especially neuroscience, is a very recent and rapidly evolving and developing field of study. Mm -hmm. When, like, even just when you're getting a basic education in it, you learn anything from... Uh, 10, even five years ago. Five years is fine. 10 years is really iffy. Yeah. Yeah. And so longer than 10 years, you'd kind of, I mean, I actually would have lost marks yeah. in school if we had used um, out of date psychology research. You can obviously always cite older stuff. Yeah. Especially when you're when you're comparing like what we used to think versus now. Yeah, like referencing uh, an old philosophy on a psychological subject. Yeah, or even showing like, hey, this has been what we known for like 15 years now. Then citing studies in the last 15 years yeah. or something that makes total sense. But when you're saying here's something that we know about the neuropsychology of the human brain. It's got to be really recent. Yeah, and I'm going to explain to you now why it needs to be recent. So Shanti was using a lot of this this information that was from quite a while ago. And um, at this point, um, the most recent article that she cited was from 2014, I believe. So at that point, now we're looking at seven years ago. Okay? So I'm going to read you something that she wrote in Through a Man's Eyes. She said this. Rather, we literally mean that at the most basic level, the structure of the male brain is physically different from that of the female brain. In many ways, it also has a completely different chemical hormonal mix. And that physical and chemical composition and process, which we refer to as brain wiring, leads to different tendencies in how men think and feel. Craig, the, her co-author, knows someone who recently got his doctorate in neuroscience who has said many times, you have no idea how much we still don't know about the brain. But brain scientists do know some things from research breakthroughs in recent years. And the structural, hormonal, and processing differences between women and men are glaring. So first of all, I do want to say that it's incredibly, incredibly misleading to say a neuroscientist told us we don't actually know anything about how the brain works still, like we, we barely know anything, and then for the author to go on and say, but we do know one thing, men and women's brains are really different. Because yeah. that's actually one of the things that we don't know. Yeah. Like the neuroscientist is not the one who said that we know that men and women's brains are different. The neuroscientist said to Craig, yeah, you have no idea how much we don't know. And then Craig and Shanti instead wrote, but we do know this one thing. And no, you don't, as we're about to, as we're about to show. There's a recent, recent, recent meta-analysis that came out about the sex differences in the structure of the brain that came out in June of this year. Like we're talking only a couple of months ago. Fresh off the press. Yeah. And it's really interesting. Obviously, we're going to link all of the meta-analyses that we talk about. There's only two meta-analyses, but we're also going to link every other kind of article that we talk about um, in the show notes. So if you do want to check it out, make sure you head over to the blog. The link is in the show notes um, below. So here's what the meta-analysis said about the physical structural differences of the brain. Larger bodies require larger brains, and the sex-gender differences in brain volume mostly parallels the divergence of male-female body size during development. Yeah, so like that speaks to this idea that men have larger brains than women and that means something. Well, it's because men on average are larger than women. A lot of the difference in brain size 
is accounted for by the fact that a lot of men are just larger than a lot of women and oh, yeah. bigger bodies need bigger brains. Oh yeah, it gets good. Yeah. Just wait. Okay. Nonetheless, it is notable that the 11% brain volume difference between men and women is smaller than the sex gender differences in other internal organs, including the heart, which is 17%, the lung at 23%, liver, 14%, pancreas, 18%, kidney, 19%, and the thyroid, 25%. So the brain difference is actually less than the difference that we have in a lot of other yeah. organs. So the brain does the same thing that all of the other organs do between men and women, but just less. less. <laughs> Not all of the other organs, but a lot right. of the other organs. Yeah. Yeah. But here, this is where we really get into the nitty gritty of it. Now, in this section, it is convoluted, and they, they talk about a lot of other articles. I'm just going to cut out all the names and dates because it's just going to be so hard to understand. So it, please go, if you want to see which exact articles they're talking about, just go read the meta-analysis. I'm going to read a shortened, condensed version, okay? So, importantly, other research have found that the gray matter-white matter ratio is itself a function of brain size, with some reporting that gray matter-white matter sex gender differences are massively reduced when covaried against total body volume. Thus, larger brains have a higher proportion of white matter than smaller brains, regardless of sex or even species. This non-uniform scaling reflects the need for more or larger diameter or more heavily myelinated axons to faithfully transmit across a greater physical difference. So what they're saying here, because I know that's, I know that's a lot. Okay, I, I hated neuroscience. I'm going to just let you know that. Like, I know this is, this is really complicated. So the brain is made up of gray matter and white matter. Yeah, okay. And, and and one of the claims in like these books is that because the ratio of white matter to gray matter is different in men and women, that their brains means function, they differently. function differently. Yeah, and, and Shanti makes that claim in her book. She that's when she's mm-hmm. talking about when she's talking about the wiring of the brain, like how the kinds of matter that we have is all even different. So here's what this means. So gray matter is in essence the cell bodies where the axons, which is what the neural impulses travel along. Like the wiring. Like the the wiring. Yeah, exactly. That's where they connect. They connect at the axon terminals. It's where you have the the nucleus of your little neurons. It's it's where you have the cell bodies. That's that's the gray matter. The white matter is the axon itself, which is like kind of like the wiring. It, It think of it like the telephone wire that connects to your house, right? Like the mm-hmm. place where it connects to your house is the gray matter, the wire itself is white matter. So what this means is if you have a bigger brain, you simply need more white matter because the stuff has to go further. Yeah, and if that sounds, well gee, awfully convenient, this is actually something we see in pretty much all of nature, just yeah. about nothing scales down or up linearly. Yeah. Like you can't just, for a great example is bugs. You can't just have bugs over a certain size like you can't have an ant that's the size of a dog because (laughs) they get oxygen through their exoskeletons and if you scale a bug up too big it simply cannot get enough oxygen through its exoskeleton it's too thick yeah when you have things that are bigger we just need different structural ways to make the bigger thing work but here's where it gets really really important and this is why we need to stay up to date with research listen to this last bit that they say accordingly men and women matched for brain size were found to exhibit no difference in gray matter white matter ratio which is just exactly what we're talking about here. All this mm-hmm. stuff about the male brain, the female brain, about how we have even different, like how our brains are composed completely differently is, first of all, a lot of the difference is size related. Yeah. 
And when you have a size difference, you're just going to need a slightly different brain structure because the brain just, you know, needs to get more stuff across a longer axon. So it just yeah. need more white matter. And then when you have a woman who has the same size brain as a man, the differences go away. Yeah. And so this is why we have to be very careful when we are talking about neuroscience research. Neuroscience research does not find that men and women's brains are different so that they almost seem like a different species, which is what Shanti says in Through a Man's Eyes. It, it really doesn't. We actually have, this meta-analysis actually found that a lot of the, the sex differences in our structures in our brain is actually less than we see in other species. So like mm -hmm. birds have way different sex specific um, structures in the brain because for instance, a lot of times the male bird is the one who does all the songs and the singing to get the mate. And so that part of the brain is huge and like six times as big as the females. Yeah. We don't have anything that's that different yeah. between men and women. Men and women, our brains as humans are actually more similar than male and female brains of many other species. And by the way, I do think it's important to mention the neuroscience meta-analysis that we're talking about right now actually does include the very studies that Shanti herself cites mm -hmm. as showing that there are massive brain differences. Yeah. So once again, like what you were saying earlier, Connor, this is the benefit of meta-analysis. It can take all these studies that all say slightly different things and weed out which of them were due to chance, which of them were just simply due to poor methodology, which of them were actually accurate. And yeah. it does seem that this meta-analysis has in essence debunked a lot of the claims in the studies that Shanti has used for years now to support her belief that men and women are different, almost different species, as she says in Through a Man's Eyes, mm -hmm. because of their brain structure, which is simply, it just seems to simply not be really true. Now I'd like to take a quick moment and say a huge thank you to our sponsor for the podcast this week. We are being sponsored by Femile, which is a feminine care company that's run by women for women. I wrote a whole post this week about their menstrual cups and why we love reusable menstrual products. The really cool thing about Femile and their products is that really because it's run by women and it's for women and it's so that women can feel empowered and more feminine and enjoy that side of themselves, it's really more about what women actually need rather than what like you know Cosmos says women should want or need um, and so we really love that their focus is on helping the environment helping your relationship and boosting your confidence in your God-given femininity and sexuality as well we love supporting other women who are working hard to make life simpler and more enjoyable for others and Femily really is doing just that so we're so thrilled that they're sponsoring us this month so thank you so much Femily make sure to check out their website and their products in the show notes there's a link that you can go to there and now back to the regular podcast so okay we're gonna stop talking about sex about um, sexual differences in brain structure after I read in essence the conclusion of this meta-analysis okay so this meta-analysis has tons of different conclusions that they got this is one where I think this gets to the heart of what Shanti was talking about in all of her books and again we're what Shanti talks about the evangelical world talks about so this is what we really need to hear today with the new research. Ready? The human brain is not sexually dimorphic. Summarizing across the extensive findings that we reviewed, sex gender differences in the human brain are extremely subtle and variable. There is nothing to justify the term sexual dimorphism to describe them. Among the few reliable differences, nearly all are byproducts of brain size and none are evidence of two shapes as dimorphism would denote. Thus, 
When brain sizes co-varied in the analysis of individuals' brain measures, sex gender differences explain about 1% of the total variance. Mm-hmm. One percent, guys. In other words, brain differences attributable to sex or gender are trivial relative to other sources of individual variation. So that's exactly it. Then they really end with just saying that, in essence, the differences are often portrayed as related to sex or gender, but they're more accurately attributable to brain size, um, such as that they distinguish large from small-headed men, (laughs) or large from small-headed women, as well as they distinguish from the average man and the average woman. This is exactly what we talked about in The Great Sex Rescue. You know how the difference between the genders is often not as large as the difference within the gender itself? Yeah. We say that, you know, all, like, men are taller than women on average. Does that mean that we've never seen a woman who's taller than a man? Of course not. It would be ridiculous to say, oh, well, he's a man, so therefore he is taller than this woman. Yeah. No! And that's exactly what we're seeing with this brain stuff. We're seeing that it's based on size, and gender really only attrib- only applies to, like, 1% of how men and women's brains are different. Yeah. So that kind of blows everything that Shanti was saying out of the water. And again, this is a meta-analysis that uses her studies that she was quoting as a part of their analysis. Yeah. Okay, so that's all we have to say about the actual structure of the brain. But what you need to know is, no, you don't have a different structural brain than your spouse does. You just don't. You know, the men around you, the women around you, we're far more similar than we are different. And if your head was bigger as a woman, you'd probably have what Shanti calls the male brain. So, can't be that male if it's only about size. So now let's talk about the really big claim that men are simply visually stimulated in a way that women can never understand. Yeah, like on a brain level. Yeah. So this is something that obviously Shanti has been saying for years. And actually, this is still being talked about even in more recent publications. In Gary Thomas and Deb Felita's book, um, Married Sex, that's not even out yet. It's coming out in October. We have an early version. This is what they quote. Ready? It may be helpful to remember that your husband has a different brain than you do. Dr. Luann Brizendine, I think it's Brizendine is how you pronounce it, a neuropsychiatrist and researcher who studied at UC Berkeley, Yale, and Harvard, points out that men have two and a half times the brain space devoted to sex drive in their hypothalamus. Sexual thoughts flicker in the background of a man's visual cortex all day and night, making him always at the ready for seizing sexual opportunity. Okay? Okay. That's who he's re- who he's citing. He's citing Luann Brizendine, and so we looked, and we're like, okay, so where is this from? Is this from a academic, peer-reviewed source? Uh, no, it's not. It's from a pop psychology book that she wrote. So this is not peer-reviewed academic. This is once again, this is put out by a publisher. This is not put out by someone who has had to go through the rigorous kind of background check for this. What she's saying. So then, what we do is we look at, oh, when was it published? You know, is this a 2019 book? Is this a modern thing? Actually, no. This is a book from 2010. So at the point of the married sex book being out, they're using research that's 11 years old. That actually would fail our 10-year test for especially research in things like neuroscience, where it's changing so rapidly. Like you saw, that meta-analysis we read was just from 2021. I mean, it came out after The Great Sex Rescue did. Yeah. Like, that is how much this stuff is changing. It's changing so quickly. We're learning so much more because our imaging is getting better. Our understanding is getting better. This is, this is a new field, relatively yeah. speaking. 
And then finally, we looked at the one-star reviews for <laughs> the book that Gary um, cites from Luann Brizendine, and the one-star reviews brought us to a lot of critiques of her book and her work in general. So first of all, I do know that, you know, we have we have areas of the brain where we tend to see them light up based on different things that we do, right? Like the dopamine pathway lights mm -hmm. up when we have sugary foods, and it also lights up when we have, take cocaine. Yeah. It also lights up when we're being tickled. You yeah. know, like, like these are areas, and there isn't like a part of the dopamine pathway that's supposed specifically for tickling. Mm -hmm. and a part that's specifically for cocaine and heroin, yeah. and a part that's specifically for sugar. And that's not the only part of the brain that will light up to any of these different things. Yeah. There's so a like, lot going on. So just to immediately say that you have a part of the brain that is only for sex within the hypothalamus, uh, a lot of neuroscience research is a little iffy on that, if anything. And again, like this meta-analysis that we just read showed, like the differences in brain structure. Because mm -hmm. what she's saying is not that it lights up 2.5 times more strongly. She's saying that it has two and a half times more space dedicated to sex in men's brains. And frankly, our meta-analysis did not find that. They yeah. did not find that there were notable sex differences. The number that I kept seeing when I was when I was looking at this meta-analysis that kind of the largest brain differences that we found between men and women are like 1.6 times, like, like 1.6. So it would be like a 60% increase, not you know, 160% mm -hmm. increase, like a 60% increase yeah. in size. And even that, it's unsure whether it's once again related to total body volume, related to all these other things. So I'm not even sure where she's getting that from. And Gary does not cite the study that that is from. She just cites this pop psychology book. So I want to read you a couple of quotes from people who critiqued. And by the way, this took three and a half minutes. So this was not a deep dive. Yeah. We did not spend a whole day of our lives. This is just the most basic background, like what you're supposed to do. Like when we were doing our undergrads, we were told how to research things to make sure that we weren't just finding some quack. And a lot of it was you search critiques. Yeah. I know that my professors told me that all the time. Find an article you think it looks great, search critiques, read the critiques. Are the critiques put out by people who are pulling other articles in and saying, but what about this? And you haven't considered that? Or are the critiques more just angry that they're not getting with the agenda program? Like there are ways mm -hmm. you can you can figure this out. So let's read some of the critiques of Brizendine's work. So when you search Brizendine critique, one of the first things that comes up is this article written by a guy who was associate professor in a department of psychology where he focused on tools and analysis for psychology and neuroimaging okay so like he actually does work in this field so once again he actually has a degree in this he works in this field and here's what he had to say about Bresendine's work so he was reviewing an article that Bresendine wrote for CNN that was promoting her book, The Male Brain. So she's using a lot of the same information. Mm -hmm. She He actually looks at a very, very similar quote to the one that Gary used in his book. So here's what she said in her article. Perhaps the biggest difference between the male and female brain is that men have a sexual pursuit area that is 2.5 times larger than the one in the female brain. Not only that, but beginning in their teens, they produce 200 to 250% more testosterone than they did during pre-adolescence, okay? So that's what she wrote in the article. And here's what this guy wrote in response. 
This might be the silliest paragraph in the whole article. Not only do I not know what Breach and Bresendine is talking about here, I have absolutely no clue what the sexual pursuit area might be. It could be just me, I suppose, but I just searched Google Scholar for sexual pursuit area and got zero hits. Is it a visual region? A part of the hypothalamus? The notoriously grabby motor cortex hand area? No one knows, and Bresendine isn't telling. Offhand, I don't know of any region of the human brain that shows the degree of sexual dimorphism Bresendine claims here. And now, obviously, in the book, she does say that it's the hypothalamus, but she makes up this whole thing where she says it's the sexual pursuit area of the brain. And today, when you look up sexual pursuit area on Google Scholar, I think there's 10 results. Two or three of them are from Bresendine herself. And then another bunch, and the majority of them are critiques of Bresendine's work and saying that this is not a thing. There isn't a sexual pursuit area of the brain. There isn't a a structure in the brain directly only about sexual pursuit and kind of sex in in the way that she's claiming. So, first of all, you have someone who is making up buzzwords in order to get her point across that are not scientifically founded. So that should be a red flag number one. So here's the second thing that she says. If testosterone were beer, a nine-year-old boy would be getting the equivalent of a cup a day, but a 15-year-old would be getting the equivalent of nearly two gallons a day. This fuels their sexual engines and makes it impossible for them to stop thinking about female body parts and sex. So she actually says that it is impossible for men to stop thinking about body parts and sex, or 15-year-olds or whatever, just males in general. They're getting testosterone like that. And this is what we see Shanti talk about. This is what we see Gary talk about. This is what we see when it's like, you just don't understand how much men think about sex. You can never understand. It's just involuntary. This is how men are. So what does this male neuroscientist say about this? Okay? It says, if each fiber of chest hair was a tree, a 12-year-old boy would have a bonsai sitting on the kitchen counter, and a 30-year-old man would own Roosevelt National Forest. What you're supposed to learn from this analogy, I honestly couldn't tell you. It's hard for me to think clearly about trees and hair you see, seeing as how I find it impossible to stop thinking about female body parts while I'm trying to write this. Like, obviously he thinks it's ridiculous, and this is just kind of what I wanted to get at, where this whole idea that men and women are so different, and men can't stop thinking about sex, and men are so ruled by sex in a way that women can never understand because of their brains and how their brains are made. People in neuroscience think this is ridiculous. Yeah. Like, both of us went to the same school. We went to a very secular liberal arts university, University of Ottawa. We had a lot of professors who were, you know, your incredibly strong feminist liberal arts professors or psychology professors who would teach us about brain differences and about gender differences. And they would talk about how men tend to respond to this kind of sexual stimuli, whereas women tend to respond to this kind of sexual stimuli. And it didn't make them think that all men were unable to stop thinking about sex. Yeah. Like, this is the thing is... the. The people who, you know, Christians tend to demonize as, like, these crazy liberal feminists didn't read this research and think that it made men gross. Yeah. Or make men unable to control themselves or unable to stop thinking about female body parts. Literally impossible for them to stop thinking about female body parts and sex. And in this whole podcast so far, I haven't had one thought about that. Because (laughs) I'm just, I'm working, I'm talking, I'm doing a podcast right now. Yeah, exactly. It's just, and this is the thing, we need to be willing to look at the critiques and we have to measure those critiques. Like, obviously this is a very tongue-in-cheek blog post kind of style, but he also links to multiple other critiques at the end of his article here and there are critiques of her other book so she had this is this book the male brain was published um in response to her first book the female brain and it was done in a very similar way and uh there's a really interesting critique of how she did the female brain um in nature.com and i want to read that 
Yet, despite the author's extensive academic credentials, the female brain disappointingly fails to meet even the most basic standards of scientific accuracy and balance. The book is riddled with scientific errors and is misleading about the processes of brain development, the neuroendocrine system, and the nature of sex differences in general. At the big picture level, these three errors stand out. First, human sex differences are elevated almost to the point of creating different species, yet virtually all differences in brain structure and most differences in behavior are characterized by small average differences and a great deal of male-female overlap at the individual level. Second, data on structural and functional differences in the brain are routinely framed as if they must precede all sex differences in behavior. Finally, the focus on hormone levels to the virtual exclusion of the systems that interpret them is especially lamentable given the book's clinical emphasis on hormone therapies. Mm-hmm. So it's just like this woman has a history of writing pop psychology books that completely ignore research of the time, how research is being done, and frankly, it seems like they're done in bad faith. Mm-hmm. It does come across that way. Yeah, especially when all modern research is kind of showing, no, men and women are not that different in terms of their brains, and we really don't have anything to prove otherwise. Yeah. So on that note, let's look at the second meta-analysis. So this is the research that we've been given, because this is what the evangelical world likes. They like this kind of research. They like research that says that men literally cannot stop thinking about boobs and butts. Yeah. Okay? This is the research that is currently being promoted in a new book coming out in 2021. Okay, 2010 research with multiple critiques saying that she fully is misrepresenting neuroscience data. That's what we're using in the evangelical world right now. So let's look at what the meta-analysis is that talks about the sexual differences in men and women's brains. So first of all, this meta-analysis did find that we do have differences in sexuality between men and women in general, based on your your sexual orientation, mm-hmm. right? So like straight women and straight men tend to find different things sexy, yeah, which we would expect. Y- yeah, that, that <laughs> it fits with a lot of common sense, but now it's backed up by what we have of neuroscience. Yeah, right? so like we're not trying to say that men and women experience everything the exact same way. But what the claim has been in evangelicalism is that men have this visual nature, which means that they are more sexually stimulated than women are, and women can never understand the draw of the visual temptation that men mm-hmm. experience. Okay, so let's actually look at what the research says, because they say that it's a about you know how much the amygdala lights up and how much all these different pathways light up and that means that men therefore are more visually stimulated than women. Here's the conclusion of the meta-analysis on this particular thing and this is pretty wordy as well so we'll do our best to explain any parts that can be confusing but here here we go. Earlier research was ambiguous with some researchers identifying differences regarding activated brain areas while others could only show small sex differences, if any, at all. So that just means earlier research was mixed, okay? The assumed sex differences in the neural processing of sexual stimuli might have been due to various factors, including hormonal status, opposing attitudes towards sexual material, differentially pronounced arousal, varying levels of sexual motivation, or simply due to insufficient sample sizes. So in essence, there's lots of reasons that the results may have been different. Yeah. For instance, Heyman et al. identified amygdala as a critical region that responds differently to sexual stimuli in 28 men and women. However, our meta-analysis with region of interest response coordinates obtained from 1,850 individuals does not support their observation. Yeah. So, so a lot of this, uh, a lot, a lot of this claim about sexual differences was all based around uh, big different responses in the amygdala between men and women. Therefore, men ha- are 
hyper-sexually focused with visual stimuli, as we can see from the amygdala. And then this meta-analysis looking at a lot more research is saying, yeah, actually, we haven't found that difference in the amygdala. And also, we can't really show that the amygdala's all that important relative to a bunch of other brain areas in the arousal yeah. cycle. Exactly, yeah, they, they say this at the end. While the amygdala is a key region responsive to visual sexual stimuli, there are no significant differences at whole brain level between the sexes. Mm-hmm. So in terms of visual stimuli, if you find it sexy, your brain responds in the same way. Yeah. So I am going to be really honest, okay? This meta-analysis is really, really thick. It's yeah. really hard to read. I found really the brain dense. structures a lot easier to read than this one because, and, and it makes sense. My education is mainly in brain structure, right? Yeah. That's that's more of the basic kind of neuroanatomy that we would have taken in school. And another thing that exacerbates that issue is that a lot of this meta-analysis really drives home that point that there is so much that we don't know about what's mm-hmm. going on here. But I actually want to make that point. Like, listen, I actually do have a very, very limited education, but I do have a bit of education in this field. And I know that this is beyond my scope of fully understanding it. So this Mm -hmm. is why I'm saying we're going to link it. You can go look at it too. But I don't understand how we're seeing these authors who are just have seminary degrees or have degrees in completely unrelated issues just openly calling themselves fully understanding the research in this incredibly complex area. I really don't understand it. Like part of being educated is knowing what you don't know. And it's not embarrassing or bad to not know everything. Sheila at one point had me look at this, uh, had me look at this study to see if I could write a blog post on it. And I read through the whole thing and I spent (laughs) quite some time on it. And I came back to her and I'm like, there are maybe like two points that I could make about this entire thing with any degree of confidence and I'd probably rather just not because there's a lot going on here and I just don't feel that I can speak that in depth. Yeah. Everything going on here. I can give you a pretty good idea of what it doesn't say. And that's exactly it. And you know what it doesn't say? It does not say that men and women have fundamentally different sexual responses. It does not say that men are sexual in a way women can never understand. And it does not say that the meta-analysis found that men's visual response means that a 60-year-old man can't help but start fantasizing about a 14-year-old girl naked or in sexual situations if she's wearing a to skimpy bikini, which is, by the way, what Shanti herself insinuated in her open letter to young girls. Yeah. And we'll link that there. Like, you can see, she actually does say that it's not just the guy you're trying to flirt with at the beach, it's also his dad or the other older men there. And she talks about how the visual part of their brain will automatically start undressing them with their eyes. And it's just, that is not what the research found. Yeah. That is not what the research found. I um, don't fully understand all of the mumbo jumbo here, and that's okay. But we can definitively say that the meta-analysis has shown that men are not natural sexual predators in the way that the evangelical world has portrayed them to be. So let's talk about that whole hypothalamus thing just one last time before we sign off on this meta-analysis, okay? Mm -hmm. So this whole idea that women and men, men have 2.5 times more space dedicated to sex in their hypothalamus than women do, that Gary Thomas is citing in their new book. And I'd say it's Gary Thomas because I I think it's one of Gary's chapters. Gary and Deb wrote different chapters, but it's both of their book. But I believe it's in Gary's chapter that he cites this. Here's a little quip from the meta-analysis that actually speaks to that. 
The identification of sex-specific activation of subcortical brain regions, such as hypothalamus, in a recent study is most likely due to the inclusion of studies using penile and clitoral stimulation and exposure to male and female pheromones. In contrast, our meta-analysis has a wider scope but stricter inclusion criteria. Thereby, it challenges the common theories that sexual arousal differs between genders, which are largely based on subjective rating of sexual arousal and desire in response to sexual stimuli instead of relying on measurable biological dimensions. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of what we have seen over and over again is that a lot of the responses are more subjective than they are actually measurable biological arousal outcomes. All in all, I hope that you get the point from this, that this is just really complicated stuff. And the fact that someone without a neuroscience degree felt it was okay to just tell the entire evangelical world, I've done the research, I fully understand this, and by the way, this is definitely what we know hands down, when the neuroscience world is still trying to piece together these pieces, is still not even 100% sure why we're seeing some of the differences that we do see, but that the differences are definitely a lot less than we thought. And of a lot of the information that was poorly cited, a lot of it was already out of date. And that's exactly it. That's the problem that I have with this. I find it so frustrating because, you know, this big meta-analysis of the actual sexual stimulation differences between men and women, they have tons of reasons why we might be seeing the differences. Maybe it's based on subjective measures of arousal. Maybe it's that, like, our brains um, simply process sexual stimuli in different ways, but it doesn't change the intensity of that experience. There's the matter of how social socialization might affect what you find arousing. Exactly. Like some people are going to respond more to feet than other people. (laughs) And that's not necessarily just there structurally from birth. Yeah, exactly. A lot of this stuff is not about, you know, we we are not vending machines where you press A and then you get Lay's ruffled chips. Yeah, we're Uh, really bad vending machines where you press A and you get a puppy. No, that's not it at all either. It's just that the brain is so complex. But the other thing is the brain is an incredibly plastic organ. You know, Mm -hmm. we know that it changes. This is why we can actually even measure that things like therapy and medication work for things like depression or anxiety. We know from multiple studies that people who suffer with major depressive disorder, their brain does actually look different. When you look under neuroimaging scans and functional MRIs, their brains respond differently to stimuli than people who do not suffer with depression. They Mm -hmm. seem to have parts of their brain that are in essence almost blacked out. And that's where we're getting these mental illnesses and stuff from. And then after you go through therapy or you're on medication and and you find treatment and you get better, once again, the brain starts acting differently. So just saying that men's brains on average act this way and women's brains on average act that way, and so therefore men are this way and women are that way, completely ignores, first of all, that the individual man is very different than the average man. We need to stop saying that just because we're seeing this slight difference, we know exactly what it means, first of all, in neuroscience, because we don't. As the neuroscientists tried to tell Craig and Shanti, it seems, 
Um, you know, <laughs> we don't actually really know what a lot of this stuff means. We do know what it doesn't mean. And it doesn't mean that men are created to be predators. It doesn't mean that men are not able to be mentally faithful. It doesn't mean that men are unable to control their sexual urges. It doesn't mean that men are less responsible for their thought life than women are. And it doesn't mean that women are less sexual than men. Yeah. I hope that what you get from this is just that this is complicated and if anyone tries to give you a really convenient and short answer for this kind of thing, the way that Shanti did in all of her books and the way that unfortunately we're even seeing in books coming out in the next couple of weeks in the evangelical circles, just give it a lot of side eye, okay? Really, really <laughs> question it. I really would love to see people who don't have degrees in this area just kind of not talking about this anymore. Um, I'm going to be honest. It is kind of funny. When I was looking through all the footnotes that Shanti had in Through a Man's Eyes and a lot of the stuff from her other areas as well, I noticed that in her footnotes, she'll cite an academic journal, but then when she quotes about it, she'll quote it from like an ABC News article about that academic journal. Mm -hmm. Or there was another one where she had two academic citations that were both from the same 2014 journal, same volume, same issue. It was literally in the same issue of the journal where one of them was the original article and the other one was kind of a review piece, which is in essence an op-ed in an academic journal talking about the actual study. Yeah. And she only quoted the the more plain English review. She didn't actually directly quote from the the study from as far as I could tell. I didn't find, go through it with a fine tooth comb, but I just find it very suspicious when there's only actually two or three real academic sources that actually did a study. And then the majority of them, when you're talking about them, you have to use someone else's yeah, like to put it in perspective, the citations and references on that book would not get you a passing grade on a second or third year psych paper. No, it wouldn't. Uh, we actually, you would have really lost points or even failed because you need like a minimum of 10 citations normally. And they need to be peer reviewed. Yeah, exactly. And again, she had some peer reviewed stuff, but she yeah. only had a couple. It was not all of the most recent data. And it was very cherry-picked. And uh, frankly, at our university, at least, we would have gotten in big trouble for that. Yeah. This is so much more complicated than they're trying to make you think it is. And really, what modern research is showing, when we're really staying up to date, is that the differences between the genders is not nearly as large as the difference within the genders. Which means that, yes, women can understand what men go through. And yes, men can understand what women go through. And it does not mean that we're so different that we're almost different species. Rather, we are just people and we have the ability to empathize with each other and yeah. we have the ability to control ourselves. And I'm hoping that if we can focus more on actual modern research and we ditch all of this, I mean, bunk that we've been believing for so long, which, by the way, was never even in the research. I do want to really reiterate that. You know, when I was reading through Through a Man's Eyes, I, I was trying to get to a citation and Shanti had made multiple claims about neuroscience before the first citation even showed up. Yeah. Like this, this stuff was not even in the research. Nothing in the research says that when a man sees a woman, he's going to start picturing what happens if her blouse pops open, what happens if she, she leans over and I accidentally see her butt. Like 
that is a cultural thing. That is something that is socialized into men. And I'm just horrified that I think we've created this problem when there didn't need to be one for so many people, for so <laughs> many, like a generation of men, really. Generations of men. And think about all the couples who are going through this unnecessarily because of a misuse of neuropsychology research. Yeah. So let's never do that again, okay? <laughs> let's <laughs> let's use modern research. And frankly, if you have a book coming out, you should not be using more than 10-year-old, non-peer-reviewed pop psychology research. So that really should never have been a thing. It's certainly not as the foundation of your argument. Exactly. So that's all that we have for you for today. Thank you for putting up with us for a while. I know this podcast was convoluted and a little bit all over the place, but that's kind of the point. Yeah. Okay. Thank, thank you for tuning in to today's dense, obtuse, convoluted info dump. And of course, we have our encouragement for the week. I have a really short one today because I think this one has already gone long. So here is a new review that we've gotten on Amazon for The Great Sex Rescue. Ready? Hannah says, My husband and I read so many books before we got married, wanting to start off on the right foot. Most of them were straight up horrible with their quote unquote biblical advice. Sheila, Rebecca, and Joanna have done a fantastic job compiling all the heavily researched data and writing something healthy for Christian marriages. My husband and I are reading this book together and have already passed on a copy to another newlywed. Read it. You won't be disappointed. Thank you so much, Hannah. We're so glad that we helped you, and we really hope this book um, helps people you're passing on to as well. Thank you for listening to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I just want to remind you that, of course, it helps us so much if you rate this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This is how um, we reach more people. It helps people discover us. So if you love what we're doing, if you like our message, please leave us a rating and we would appreciate it so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the week and we will talk to you later.